Out of the 93 Best Picture winners, one must be crowned the bestest of the best. You're listening to The Quest for the Bestest from Backlog Banter. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Tucker Hazel, Tanner Dykstra, and Abram Buner. You can find more of our content on YouTube and Twitter at Backlog Banter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Quest for the Bestest. It's the podcast where we, the Backlog Boys, me, Timo, Tanner, Tucker, and Abram, are going through every single best picture winner in a completely random order. The wheel controls our fate. We love the wheel, we hate the wheel, and we are subservient to the wheel. And um, it gave us quite a movie to talk about this week. It's Moonlight from 2016, the most recent film we've seen um, other than the most recent winner, Nomadland and Parasite. And so we, 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 we almost jumped 80 years in contrast to the previous film that we saw, Mutiny on the Bounty, <laughs> Um, which was from 1935. And you might be wondering, where did Mutiny on the Bounty end up? And I'm asking that question myself because we were in a deadlock tie, a numerical tie down to the last decimal place. We were in a tie in our, in our preferences of where it should go. And so we decided you, the viewers and the listeners, should have a little bit of, of a chance to weigh in here. So come talk to us in the comments of this video. If you're listening, go onto the YouTube channel and and write down your thoughts down there in the bottom. Um, whether you think Mutiny on the Bounty or The French Connection should be on top. That's what it's tied with. We wanna hear your input and you, the viewer, will decide where that film ends up. We had a good time talking about it, a lot of fun. We want you. We want yeah. you, um, yes. Also, that video, not this video. Yes, It doesn't that matter, video. we can read the comments just as well on either one. Well, yes. that... <laughs> Okay. Yep. Tell also, us what you think. Let's make this a challenge, right? Because either way, we're going to get the same comments from the same three people. So if you don't want to be part of the silent majority, yes, speak out. I, frankly, I don't care if it's in this comment section or the last one. But the fact is, we're kind of recording out of order, so it's a little bit of a sticky wicket. But we're yes. going to figure the whole thing out, but only with your help. So make sure yes. you leave a comment somewhere. I don't even care if you've seen either of those movies. Let <laughs> us know what you think based purely on the vibes. Yes, that's true. Okay, and with that, um, we don't really have a featured comment this week because we're really getting back into the swing of things, just yes. rolling right along recording these episodes, but we're having a good time. Moonlight, directed by Barry Jenkins, 2016. A bit of a fiasco. It was the, It's the best picture winner that almost wasn't um, for a mm -hmm. little while, if you can remember back to that Oscars ceremony. Um, what did you guys think of this film? First of all, have you guys seen it before? Because um, I know I've I have. Uh, and I was, yeah, I know I was praising it quite a lot at the end of the episode, but I'm just curious. Tanner, you haven't seen it. Abram, you? It's my nope. first time. First okay. time. There you go. So who wants to lead us off with some thoughts? Maybe weave in a little bit of a synopsis in there? Um, sure. I mean, uh, as as one of the 50% of us who's ex inexperienced with this film, I think I can handle it. I think you can uh, too. So, well, no, 100% of us, hopefully 100% of us are experienced with this film, because that would help yes, a course. lot in this review. <laughs> and uh, in my experience, I picked up this as a, as a plot for the film. So it, we follow uh, our main character, Sharon, uh, Sharon, excuse me, I believe is how they pronounce it in the film. Uh, he is, we see him start off as a, as a young boy uh, growing up in Liberty City, Florida. It's a suburb of Miami. Um, and he is, you know, he's very clearly alienated from the rest of the kids around him as a product of his sexuality. Uh, he also has the, you know, the added struggles of growing up in an impoverished neighborhood uh, as a, as a, as a African American child. And uh, through, we we sort of time jump through his life as a teenager and as an adult man, and we see his struggles continue. Uh, through his personal relationships, his interpersonal conflicts with his sexuality and what it means to be a man and masculinity and how he should emote and uh, let others get close to him. And it, it sort of culminates on a, on a sweet note with him uh, reuniting with a, with a childhood friend and lover. And uh, it, this is a beautiful film. I'm very fresh on it. We just watched it last night for this recording. So I'm, I'm very excited to sort of talk this one out, parse it out as we, as we go through this review. Great. Uh, Tucker, you want to give us a little break from the fresh perspective and, and show us what it's like to watch this movie movie as a returning viewer? I, I just, first off, I want to congratulate you, Tanner. That was actually a really good synopsis. Usually our synopses are, are kind of choppy, but I mean, that was actually a, a solid flow and I really appreciate it. But Moonlight is a movie that I saw a couple years ago, uh, mostly because it's a movie that a lot of people say is really, really, really good. Uh, and and I came into it with pretty much no expectation that first time, and I enjoyed it quite a bit that first time, but it was way before my time of 
analyzing film, of considering film in a particularly large way. So I, I had largely forgotten a lot of it, but I, I think um, a lot of this film boils down to not necessarily specific moments for me, but more of an overall tone and, and emotion that the, the vibe of the film gives off. Um, so I don't know how uh, I'm gonna, how I'm going to be weaving my thoughts throughout this conversation, but as as topics are brought up, I'm sure it'll spark things yes. in my head. But I still do think it's a, I, I think it's a really great movie. It's not one of my personal favorite Best Picture winners, and it's not so it's not right up there at the top. But um, I've got, got a lot of positive things to say about it. Yes, there you go, Abram. So I I should note that one of my five favorite films of all time is La La Land. So I have a mm. I have a personal stake in in this whole controversy, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and completely setting that aside, I think that this is obviously deserving of that win. Yeah. Um, but but I'm I'm very I'm very conflicted on on this film. I I really don't know how I feel about it. Um, I think in the moment is a very powerful emotional statement and i think that the sort of i don't know sort of really peculiar filmmaking techniques that break up the narrative and frame shots interesting interestingly are very disorienting in a way that i found compelling as i was watching but i think leaving my first viewing i think this is a very disjointed film intentionally so obviously but in a way that feels unsatisfactory and whether or not that dissatisfaction is intentional uh, on behalf of the director, for me personally, I find myself wanting more out of this, specifically yeah. in the case of something like Mahershala Ali, who is amazing, and we set up this really interesting tension in in the first story that doesn't get played out later. And while I, I understand why the story is told this way, and I think it's powerful by its own merit, I don't think that this film really stuck the landing for me. But that said, I think that if I were to watch this movie again, it might be higher on my list after a second viewing. But I have to say that I am not sold on the decision to structure the way, to structure the film the way it is structured now after seeing it once. So I um, have seen this film three times now. This is my third time watching it. Uh, I've seen it in theaters, at home, and on my cell phone. And and it's all been very powerful um, different times that I've, I've seen it. Um, and I, and my thesis statement on the film kind of condenses into this idea that it does a lot with very little. This film has very sparse dialogue. It has, it has very sparse scenes, but you get a lot of what it's trying to tell you. This film, I think, is very, is very clear in its message that it's giving. Um, and so I, I like seeing and figuring out how, how that's being developed. I think this film is, is beautifully shot. It was one of the first films... That, that I saw that like showed to me how really textured and good feeling digital cinematography could be is shot on shot digitally with small cameras um, that really ended up influencing me the first time I saw it and how I, how I make my own movies. Um, and I just want to add this out here that this film was originally based on a play and so that Barry Jenkins himself directed and then adapted it himself to the screen. And so... That's just a little bit of info to throw out there that um, this viewing, I noticed its plainness a lot more than hmm. I did previous times. Well, interesting. Uh, yeah, um, that's something I honestly did not know at all. I, I'd be curious to learn a little bit about that play because I could not tell you how a play with a, uh, a chopped up structure like this with three different casts would even work. Um, yeah. But that, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Timo, I'm, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, do my best to sprinkle in trivia throughout you know in previous quest episodes we sort of have a trivia dump at the end but uh you said it does a lot with a little in fact that's what the uh, production team the creative team had to do with this because this oh. film was shot over the course of just 25 days whoa uh, actually filmed in liberty city florida it's a it's a neighborhood that both barry jenkins and the writer uh terrell mccraney grew up in so they, they grew up in the same neighborhood they had a budget of $1.5 million, a very, very small budget, That's for, very especially little. for uh, a modern film. And uh, the production, or the, the, people, the, the people giving money to the production uh, were very apprehensive about having 80% of this film you know, shot in one of the most impoverished areas in the country until they learned that both uh, Jenkins and McCraney were from the area. And uh, there's a testimonial from actress Naomi Harris, who plays Paula, uh, Chiron's mother. She said she had never felt more appreciated or at ease on uh, on set for filming, while filming in than filming in uh, Liberty City, Florida. 
Yeah. I think all of the points that both of you bring up here about it being based on a uh, play that Jenkins wrote and, and being based a lot largely in his personal experience shows a lot to this film. And I think mm-hmm. why this film is very u- obviously very unique compared to their Best Picture winners, but does stick out to me, even if it's not one of my personal favorites, is it does have such an independent feel to it. You, you get started off in a really calm way. You're talking, you have this this young boy who's not talking very much and and the shots are are shaky cam and and the dialogue is very naturalistic and it feels just worlds away from what we're used to seeing in best picture winners which is high budget laser focused uh, performances and and um dialogue and all that and this has a much looser more atmospheric feel and that's one of its strongest suits and that obviously shows through i think personally my favorite aspect of this film, which is that cinematography mm-hmm. that uh, Timo was mentioning, and especially the way that it uses color throughout this film. I mean, the two main colors are sort of a seafoam blue and pink, and the ways that the sets are designed in the backgrounds with different greens and blues sort of accenting the characters and blue lights and pink lights uh, framing them, it's gorgeous, and it really contributes to that, that tone that I was starting to talk about at the beginning of my original thoughts that just permeates throughout this so i was really absorbed into the film from that that tone perspective being so different it being so visually compelling and just creating this atmosphere that i that was really enraptured and even if i do have problems i think i want to spin more off what abram said later on about about its structure um helping and hampering the the story tucker Mm -hmm. you used a word there that i want to jump on because i was going to use it myself you said naturalistic and i find the way this Mm -hmm. film portrays everything is in in a sense of of like utter striving for it to feel like real life in almost every capacity that it can. The way the camera moves around and and I think that it, and it's shot in very long lenses. You get very this it's you know no there are very few wide shots in this film. The way that it, the camera shakes and that the characters talk to each other in this dialogue that that is kind of disjointed and and sparse and characters say a lot with their eyes and with their performances. Um, really adds to the, the the feeling of the film and, and and definitely helps me view it in in how I interpret the message of the film because if we're just going to get into this film to me is about the about you know black life in America and to a greater extent this school to prison pipeline um, that mm-hmm. we're, we're shown very explicitly in the film but I want mm-hmm. I, I feel as if those elements are all striving to make it so that you believe it's real because the elements that it is showing you as a story are real yeah. in America and are real things that, that Barry Jenkins wants us to think about after we're done with the film. And so in order to enhance yeah. that message, he shoots it in this very, very not fiction-like way, I think, at all, or at least not in a, in a stereotypical best picture winner-like way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Um, Abram, I, you, you were looking like you had ahead, a thought Abram. there. Well... Yes, I did. And I also so I, had a little head of yours. <laughs> I, I want to respond to that, but I also want Tanner to tell me what he thinks about the movie because I, I've been waiting. I've been waiting oh. for his thoughts because we never heard that. However, what I was going to say to that point is I I disagree <laughs> in in pretty large part with the idea that this film feels natural. Mm. I think it feels decidedly unnatural, and I think that's why the movie is very interesting. I think that when we get those sequences of the camera spinning through through a scene, or when we get these sorts of I, I think of the scene when Chiron is coming back in to break the chair over that guy's back and it feels like it's being shot at a higher frame rate or there's some kind of distortion on the way he's moving or these these really claustrophobic and intimate dialogue exchanges where we're doing a shot, reverse shot, but the dialogue is not in sync with the way that the characters' mouths are moving. Yeah, sure. These yes. are really excellent, but these do not feel real to me. And so what I think makes this film interesting and where I I disagree, even though I think that obviously the narrative and the themes are grounded in in America and our social issues that we have politically, I think that the ways that it feels theatrical are why the movie is interesting and why during the runtime I sort of found my issues with the structure of the movie being obscured because I was compelled by the ways that the story was mediated by a filmmaker who had something to say and a style in which he wanted to say it. That's very interesting. I definitely see your reading of that. Absolutely. I think the film has a lot of room to read it very differently. 
Tanner. I was prepared oh. to be like, what are you talking about? This is a very <laughs> naturalistic movie. And then I'm like, oh, we know. Yeah, yeah there are yeah, some interesting editing techniques and the camera does do some weird stuff. But I think the reason that that feeds into that that really focused tone of naturalism that Timo and I were picking up on is that they very closely mimic the emotions in the sequences. The reason that, you know, low angle, high frame rate, whatever of Chevron coming to hit the chair on the guy's head works, even though it is totally unrealistic way to shoot that, it's because he's focused in that moment. He's just, he has one thing yes. to do. Sure. Sound is cut out, it, whatever, doesn't matter. Uh, and then he does it. Or, or the ways that the dialogue doesn't sync up. That's because people aren't focused on the conversation and they're, they're sort of, their attention is fading in and out of the conversation. So it's sort of time just like loops on it in on itself. And, but it ends up feeling naturalistic, I think in large part because um, the, the movie isn't focused entirely on those kind of editing techniques. And a lot of it is people sitting in naturalistic environments with naturalistic lighting and stuff like that. So when it does those, that just enhances it. But you're right, it's not all natural. It's got, a, it's got a layered tone, which I think you can analyze multiple levels. Yeah, I think that Barry Jenkins very clearly had a had a very adept artistic hand in blending those naturalistic and artistic elements into, into a really beautiful product. What he succeeds the best at, I think, is putting you into Sharon's perspective. Uh, in just the few examples that we talked about, like uh, in that conversation with his mother when he's a teenager, uh, that was where I really first picked up on the thing of um that it would do a shot reverse shot putting you in Sharon's POV and talking to his mother he's looking at her face her mouth isn't moving but her lines are going in in a mm -hmm. narration almost and you know Tucker like Tucker said he's not focused on the conversation he's he's focused on his mother as a person in this moment um the higher frame rate while while he's about to go attack i think it's uh, a shutter speed. with this chair i think you shutter up, speed. up the shutter speed for like which is like an action thing this is a that filmic is like, action trope that's like the like that feeling of like almost disconnectedness and, and focus that you get when you have that adrenaline rush going when you when you when you're like mm -hmm. you're filled with anger or something like that that it, I think it does a great job of recreating those very personal, intimate things that go on in someone's mind, and it places you right in its main character's headspace. Yeah. And I mean, especially I think the reason that this movie does work so well is the fact that its main character is a really interesting person. Following mm. Chiron through his entire life, well, I do think, that, and this is his character and his arc and all that is tied very clearly to the structure of the movie, um, which, you know, I say has, has pros and cons, but it is so interesting to much like Citizen Kane, watch this guy's entire life play out, mm -hmm. or, or at least like, you know, a large portion of it. He's in his mid to late twenties. I don't know yeah. at the end of the film. So it's not his entire life, but it's a large enough chunk of his life where you're able to see him grow from this kid who I think the, I think, Kid Chiron, or Little, as, as they call him, yeah. is my favorite section of the film because him as, as a young boy is so unique in terms of he is just jaded by life. He's like eight, but yeah. he's just, the world has given him crap. His mom is a drug addict. His dad is gone. Like, people bullying him all the time. He doesn't understand his sexuality. And he's just sitting there quietly. But you see so much emotion in his face. And that just pulls you in immediately. Like, okay, who is this kid? I, you know, he's, he's, a cute kid. I want to protect him. I want to see him do well in life. What are his relationships like? How does he react to situations? And and watching him grow up and have his personality change, in some ways very starkly, but in in many ways say the same throughout each section of his life is just endlessly fascinating. And that's and I think that's why this movie does work so well. I, I will say that personally, I think that adult Sharon is the least interesting. Mm. I preferred his childhood and teenage years a lot more than i did that last section i think they they felt a little more varied they felt a more little more um thematically interesting and of course i can relate to them in high school and middle school life a little better than adult because i i haven't been a, 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 a full adult yet i'm still in college um mm. but um i don't know I mean, those, those are my thoughts in terms of the structure because i think that it's really cool to see him not cool but very interesting to see him grow up and see different chunks of his life Though it does, like Abram was saying, cut what we expect out of narrative structure and, and character relationships and arcs and things like that. So it can feel really unsatisfying to mm -hmm. not have Mahershala Ali show up after the first third of the movie. To not have um, Janelle Monae show up in the last third of the movie. It's like, okay, I want to see these characters, but 
this point in his life, he's moved on past them. Or in, in uh, mm-hmm. Juan's case, he's dead, um, which yeah. is something I wish they'd shown a little more. But I think yeah. it's because this movie is so fascinating to me. I want to see more out of this. So it's just a little bit dissatisfying when we're not shown them. Mm-hmm. But there is, yeah, there's pros and cons to to having the structure be this way. Yeah. Abram, um, you, you were thinking about the, uh, the the structure earlier. You want to lay out your thoughts on that whole thing? Yeah, so when I think about the structure of the film, my biggest issue with it is not necessarily Chiron himself because I think his arc and the way he moves throughout the film is very compelling, and I think we pick good points to drop in uh, on him mm-hmm. during, even though I did find the beginning of Black to be a little bit... Black is the name of part three, in case you haven't seen mm-hmm. the film, to be a little bit disorienting because I didn't even recognize it as him at first, which I think is an effective shift. But on the whole, it worked for me. I think my bigger issue is the way that the characters around him are served or underserved by this shift, right? I, I think that obviously Mahershala Ali is a big loss because I think that tension between his mother's drug addiction, him, and Mahershala Ali is so interesting yes. and, and ends in a way that does not feel satisfying, but in a way that feels equally thematically unsatisfying as narratively unsatisfying. Mm. And, and that's sort of my issue with it. I think that the mother plays okay and having Kevin jump in and out works for me, but I, I just wish that when, that, when this theme of, dr- of drug addiction and the sort of impoverished nature of the community is so important, Losing Mahershala Ali didn't just hurt the narrative and the character dynamics, but also what the film was trying to say, in my opinion. So that's kind of where I found myself disconnected as I wanted that third part to bring it all back around when it didn't. Um, Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just uh, maybe I'm getting a a different thematic reading of it. But uh, I'm looking at the themes of this movie as something broader than, uh, you know, sociopolitical narratives about about these about this community. And I'm looking at it at a. Yeah, I'm looking at it on an even broader scale of like sexuality, masculinity, vulnerability. I think that's what this film is really trying to talk about, um, because those thing those things are core to Sharon's character and his character arc and how he changes over the course of the film. Uh, Abram, you brought up how you know that jump from when he's known as Sharon as a teenager to black as an adult. Uh, and how he's almost—that's almost an unrecognizable shift over ten years because he's. Let me, Trevante Rhodes, by the way, a Greek god of a man that—that that has he's like zero percent body fat, just an incredible physique on that guy. But it serves a narrative, uh, thematic narrative purpose because Sharon has packed on this muscle in prison as sort of a way to. Uh, block himself off from the world to show the world that he is no longer vulnerable. He is no longer to be fucked with. Essentially, he he is he's locked in this like case of muscle and hardened masculinity. This p- facade that he's now putting on to make sure that he's never hurt again emotionally or physically. Tanner, what you, right. you you just bringing up there makes me think about the why a, a reason why I like this film is that I I had the some of the socio political the, the life in in Black America and impoverished Black America. Abram had his reading of it, and and you've got your reading of the thematic ideas of the film. And I think that you're you, both of you guys are absolutely correct in in what is going on with because the film doesn't go into it, it doesn't go super. It's hard for me to think. It's not like it's unexplicit about what it's talking about. It is clearly mm-hmm. about all of these things, but it's also very broad in the way that it brings them in and these thematic ideas um, play off of each other. Like um, in, if we're thinking about structure, I'll just give up an example. Um, why do we jump from teenage to adult Sharon? Is because he 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 went to prison, and it's this that, that whole idea of he was literally in school. There's, there's, there's a lot of drama there, and it's not his fault, and he's just... He's retaliating, but he was being picked on and there's issues that aren't being solved. And Mm -hmm. why does he have to go to prison for this now? That whole idea is like, boom, now we're jumped ahead. And then in the end, with with Kevin in the final moments of the film, and we're we're seeing that hardened masculinity fade away um, as as we sit there in in some of the final shots of the movie. And it's a very touching moment um, that just, I think, proves how versatile this film is in in dealing with thematic material it's because it doesn't say a lot not like say it like literally there aren't very much lines of dialogue and there Mm. isn't a lot of of action i think that's why it's able to communicate all this stuff through pure film communication which is something that is super impressive to me and man if i could 
communicate my ideas as well as Barry Jenkins does in this film, I would not be making this podcast probably. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> How dare you? How dare you, Timo? How dare you? No, but I, I, I think you're right in, in the sense that the reason, when you say it doesn't say a lot, it's not that it doesn't have interesting things to say, but it doesn't focus on any particular one of them. So you can't very clearly get this reading out of this part of the structure of the film on this theme because it changes from section to section. Each one has different focuses on different themes. And, and Abram, focusing in on what I think is one of the more interesting themes of the film as well, is that that dynamic between parenting and, and drug abuse and how they, the relationship between Mahershala Ali and... Uh, what was the mom's actor? Uh, Naomi uh, Harris. Na- sorry, yes, Naomi Harris. Their dynamic and how they both relate back to to both essentially their child um, is is fascinating. But that is not really, for the most part, touched upon for the rest of the movie because it shifts away. Obviously, uh, Juan dies and, and he moves away from his mother for the most part. Um, but you can read it from all these different angles. And, and I think they're equally valid. But when you focus on a particular one of them, like Abram said, there are clear examples of of it losing a little bit in terms of its structure because it 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 can cut away a a part of that theme Mm -hmm. i agree with that and i think part of my problem and this is definitely a a personal way that i read film i like focus in terms of theme and sometimes for me i think that this movie could have been stronger had it focused a little bit more because Mm. tucker made the joke about um, just a little bit ago about saying, oh, the film's about socioeconomic issues, right? And that's already pretty broad. But then Tanner wants to take it even broader. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like I think about this in things like uh, Jordan Peele's Us, for instance, mm-hmm. where if we took the time to isolate, okay, we've got all these threads. And I think that both Moonlight and Us, when we're talking about Moonlight, of course, is a nice job, as we're saying, touching on all these different thematic elements and weaving together kind of a larger picture of of life, right? And I think that's interesting. But I also think that in a film that is this artistically pointed from sort of a production standpoint, I think having a little bit more specificity in the theme would have also helped for me because it it does feel unsatisfying in in a not deliberate way to raise interesting points like that scene where we have Juan crying at the table after he admits to Chiron what's going on, right? And then to drop that. I just don't think that that really serves the characters or the audience's expectations. So while I can appreciate yeah. the sort of flexibility and the ways that you have to be so deliberate in your in your writing and your acting and the nuance of every facet of the production to make that work, I can't help but wonder how much better it could have worked if we had laser-focused in on not even just one theme, but one basket of themes. And that's just Mm. kind of where I find myself, again, on that first viewing, not sure if I'm fully behind the construction of the film, even though I totally get what everybody's saying, Timo, Tanner, about having these different views and readings. I think that narrowness would have helped. Sure. I want to talk about maybe maybe put a button on talking about Sharon specifically and then maybe expand to uh, the sort of sparse but still very, very solid supporting cast here. Um, mm. And this also speaks to the structure of it because this is broken down into, into three acts, essentially. Little, Sharon, and Black. Uh, I, in different areas of the film, he's referred to those names. And uh, I think it's an interesting comment on how, like... Um, the, the the whole film is to me is sort of about like how your environment shapes you and puts labels on you and how you can either be defined by those labels or you can reject them. Sharon obviously is basically tragically defined by these labels and hardened and crushed and put into a box by his by his environment that's hyper masculine and, and basically refutes any sense of vulnerability, especially male vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and I think the idea of him going by different names is sort of that idea of him being put under different labels throughout his life. And quick bit of trivia relating to the three different actors. Uh, Barry Jenkins said in an interview that on set, none of the three different actors for Sharon ever met. And he encouraged hmm. the, as encouragement for them to build sort of their own unique identity for what this era of Sharon would be. Interesting. Yeah, and I think that that just points to the fact that they wanted each of internally he has changed so much from from the way that the world sees and the way he sees himself between each of these sections that you know from my from first glance or hearing that uh, that piece of trivia I'm like I w- I wonder how different it would have been if they had been able to sort of unify their vision but mm-hmm. I I think there's benefits to both ways though I I 
could see myself feeling a little more compelled by uh, the cohesiveness of of uh, of Chevron's entire arc if mm. if the characters if they had if they had met if they had communicated a little better if there had been a stronger through line um but uh, i don't know it's it's, just, it's interesting either way and that's also a really interesting piece of trivia that that, that uh shows how focused Jerry Bank Jerry Bankins uh <laughs> Barry Jenkins was on on uh, having this be his artistic vision like mm-hmm. blocking the actors from meeting one another is a pretty big step to take Yes, I think you bring up a very interesting point, Tanner, at large about the, about the names and about the this stuff. I think, I mean, we're, I'm trying to keep let us stray away from thematic talk, but another mm-hmm. more 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 thematic ideas to to really throw into the hat there, and just food for thought, really, to think about. Oh, well, how do my um, labels define who I am, and do you know just allow it to to let those ideas wash onto myself um, after discovering them in the movie. That's I think that's. Very, very excellent stuff, Tanner. Good job. Thank you. Um, yeah, I did say I want to talk about, you know, Mahershala Ali, Naomi Harris, uh, uh, I'm blanking Janelle on Monet. Janelle Monet. Thank you. Uh, because obviously Mahershala Ali won a won an award for this role. Um, but I think his before I, I was going to use that as a segue to go to awards, but I want to talk about Mahershala Ali first, because like Abram said, and I feel myself leading towards this criticism as well. I wanted more. I, re- I really did. No, Mahershala Ali is a fantastic, you know, has an uh, amazing on-screen presence. And his character is so interesting in how he relates to Sharon, not only as a person, but his home life and everything. Uh, by being a drug dealer who inadvertently provides drugs to Paula, his mother. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Uh, Mahershala Ali is amazing. And he has these, these heart-to-heart, beautiful heart-to-heart moments with. Uh, young Sharon Little, uh, as he's referred to, and I have a hard time calling it a criticism of the film because it's very clearly an artistic decision, and I think it evokes something within the film. But at the same time, I still feel that wanting, so I I, I don't know how to how to leverage both of those. But wh- what do you guys think? You, you can talk about Mahershala Ali. You can talk about any of the other characters in this. Kevin, so- I forgot to bring up Kevin as well. Sorry. I think all of them are incredibly acted, and and I think that makes this sort of wanting even stronger, because mm-hmm. what they're able to evoke with so little is a testament to just the production, to the writing, to what the performances we got out of these characters, right? But but And, and so I, I think, considering especially how important Teresa is to the mother throughout the entire film, mm-hmm. losing that element of the dynamic did hurt, and that's why I do feel like it's more of a criticism than a desire. Because even a strong artistic decision, I feel, can be made perhaps incorrectly in the eyes of the audience. And, and, I, and I would have recognized, had I been behind the camera, which I'd never be in a, in, with a film this good, but the point is I might have thought to myself, <laughs> what, what we're evoking here with these characters is so rich. And so I, that's why I agree with you, Tanner. I kind of struggle with the supporting cast when they all provide something so interesting and tell something that, that kind of makes Chiron's life even richer that it does it does feel like a problem with the film mm-hmm. I, again yeah. again it comes back to a tension of is this sort of dissatisfaction intentional right mm-hmm. is this something yes. that we should feel but but i but then i come to ask myself well why should i feel that perhaps are we making a commentary about chiron losing this sort of father figure in his life right and i think that's pretty clearly what they're trying to say However, I just think we lose it too soon. Maybe if he yeah. had, maybe if we'd lost him between part two and part three, it would have felt differently. But after part one, I think it is a problem. It happens very suddenly. And he, he he has that interaction. Is is the last time when he's with him in the ocean, or is there a time after that? No, it's them at the table, is it not? It's the okay. table. He put he yeah. like he puts his head oh, in his hands the... and he's crying, and then we never yes. see him again. Yeah, it does feel sudden, uh, in my personal opinion. But yeah, and I do wish you know he'd gotten more of a uh, a cinematic send off, if you will, something that served the the story a bit more. Maybe I think I mean it is. It, oh, sorry, you can uh, the the way that that I see, and I, I I sort of feel your frustration too. Um, in in those moments, is that if we're gonna go for this this naturalistic kind of like a, a real life plot, sort of is is what we're thinking of. Um, mm-hmm. It's at least more excusable to have a character die and drop out like like you know nothing out of left field basically 
um, mm-hmm. than if if we're going to be in a in a more cinematic plot. Uh, just sp- speaking about like the literal events sure. that happen. Um, and so if we're trying to f- frame up this as real life, that happens in real life. Um, and so while I too want to see Mahershala Ali on screen more, I he's a great actor. Um, I I find myself going like, oh well, yeah, I've had people, you know. You know people who have had people die in their lives, or maybe yourself mm-hmm. have had that. And so it's like, while as like a film goer, I I understand and I'm frustrated by this thing. As a as a life experiencer, I am I'm like, well, that happens, you know. Yeah. So uh, it, those but, are two uh, things I don't quite know how to reconcile them. Truthfully, there's just two separate thoughts exist in my head about the same topic. I will say oh, two whole thoughts. I will say they could have they could have put him in that second act because uh, the bully says that he the bully implies that uh, Juan is still alive in the, in that second act. He says uh, Juan will be dead in a minute, though. So he's not dead yet. And teen or yeah, Sharon as a teen does go to Teresa's house instead and spends the night there in, in act two. So mm-hmm. there's no reason why Mahershala couldn't have also have been there. Um and it, it it felt off that he wasn't. It, it I thought that he died between part one and two. No, I Am think I'm wrong about that. I'm pretty I, sure that Bully had a line where he said, "Juan will be dead in a minute." Though I, I I'm pretty sure that's what he said. I I think this speaks to perhaps the only place that I feel like the, the script makes a mistake in that Chiron never unpacks that death, and I think mm, that's yeah. where I would have felt not dissatisfied had there even been just a couple lines of dialogue or just a scene on the beach or something where he reflects upon that because then otherwise I think conversation it, between him and Teresa yes, yeah, perfectly perfect for that because otherwise I think we're just kind of invited to try to answer these questions about timeline and about utility when we could have on a script level solved that problem by making that death feel like the deliberate life event that you were talking about Timo yes okay um uh, I, I want to talk about uh, Naomi Harris. Uh, I really only because I have a piece of trivia about her. Uh, she <laughs> was nominated for best supporting actress in this, uh, and she was on a very. And this is a larger comment about about the what the supporting actors do with their screen time. She was very limited in her onset availability because they were also filming Spectre at the time, uh, and she was also on a visa. She's a Brit bonger for those of you who don't know, uh, Naomi Harris. So she was. She had basically three days to film her entire part of the film. What? Uh, they were filmed out of sequence. She, yeah. you know, she's in three different time periods, out of sequence, over the course of three days, and she still managed to get a, a nomination at the Oscars. Wow, yeah, I mean, she's the only. She's the only actor to be in all three parts, if I'm remembering correctly, because of course the kids yes. grow up. Paula is in all three uh, Juan parts. Juan dies. The mother, the mother and, is also. And Teresa is not in the third one. Yeah, That's she's, what we're talking oh. about. She's we're our, talking about Naomi Harris. Oh, yeah, Naomi Harris. Our, yes. I, 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 was, yes. I was not, I was for some reason talking about Janelle Monet. I don't know why no. they were yeah. mixed up in my mind. Yeah, she was our through line through that, and she managed to swing all of that in a three-day span in sequence that were in sequences that were filmed out of out of sequence in some other. of the more powerful sequences of the film i mean yes. like oh, so yeah. tucker you're talking about the pink Her. lights that reminds me of of the scene with the bedroom um very moving very moving yeah. scene right there oh that mm-hmm. that final conversation that she has with trevante rhodes at like that rehabilitation center that's another great yeah. sequence from her but uh, like I said, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Mahershala Ali obviously was uh, won the Best Supporting Actor award with only 20 minutes of screen time. I might add. Yeah. Uh, for nice. the uh, for the other wins and noms, obviously this one Best Picture. Uh, it won Best Adapted Screenplay, uh, written by Terrell Elvin McCraney and Barry Jenkins. It was nominated for directing. Barry Jenkins was uh, cinematography. It got a nomination as well as editing and original score. The score in this all, film all very is very yes. interesting. Oh, the score is so good. Yes, it's got it's, it's this. It, I, I, the moment where it sticks out the most to me is when they're when he's floating in the ocean mm-hmm. and the and the strings are like flowing up and down in terms of how loud they are and and in terms of you know going up and down on, mm-hmm. the, on a musical scale and it's it's all really focused and and I I don't notice score very often to be honest but this this one I think deserves all of that that accolade. This sort is of probably like water. Yes, this is probably one of my favorite scores in any film, period. I, I think it's amazing, and I think that the utilization of it is also amazing. The sort of distortions we get on it, the riffs we get yeah. on it, 
all fantastic. But also the fact that you just read a lot of nominations and a lot of wins in categories yeah. like cinematography and editing just speak to the fact that that entire Oscar ceremony was a complete nightmare. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> be, be, so if it didn't, what even once? I'm going to look up one cinematography over this film. Hang on a Because second. I really think that the scene where, where Juan is teaching Little to swim and the water is rising up like most of the frame oh with the God, waves yeah. is some of the most beautiful and evocative cinematography I've ever seen in my entire life. It was life. La La Land. I can't be one. mad at it, but I can't <laughs> fully be mad at it, let's say. But, but I, I do think that editing and cinematography were absolutely deserved wins, and the score, like I said, is is beautiful and beautifully used, which I think is really important. Oh, in that swimming yeah. scene, I, I will add, uh, Mahershala Ali is actually teaching Alex Hibbert how to swim. He didn't know how to swim before the film started production. Wow, what a, what a way I, I to get a great performance out of both of them. Yeah, you think they were casting for a, a little boy who couldn't swim? Maybe so that they could get that realistic performance out. Of it? I mean, it's it's certainly possible, but regardless, that contributes to to the realism of that sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just we one, we we've gone over most of the film filmmaking fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Sound guy in me just wants to bring up that my my naturalistic thesis I feel does break down a little bit when you start paying attention to the sound yeah. in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, in in my mind, I would have mixed it differently. I'm not a professional mixer, but I would have tried i don't there's there are there are lines here and there that mm, we're not set on set is what i'm gonna say oh okay i see um they they were they're I, like great lines but there's you know they're like hmm, that guy's mouth wasn't moving when he said that the last thing i wanted to talk about is that final meeting between uh sharon and kevin uh it's the what the film closes out on and i think it really yeah. ties up everything in a nice little bow we get sharon at his you know he's hardened into this shell of being uh not it, completely invulnerable not showing any emotion not showing any love to anyone and he does that for the entirety of that conversation in the diner and kevin is very clearly trying to evoke that from him but they're both tr being very understated in what they're saying the dialogue is fantastic in that scene uh, but you can see it on these actors' faces, uh, what the longing that they, this romantic longing that they have for each other, and uh, the thing, the, what this film, the note that the film closes on is another element of I wish I got more because we close yeah. on this on this scene of Sharon finally being able to open up to someone in the first time in in over ten years essentially since the last time he and Kevin were together, um, and I uh, like I said I wish I had more there. But what we got is is so well done that, again, I feel a bit strange about levying that criticism. Yeah, this is one place what? where I would disagree, Tanner, okay. with, with that cr complaint, because I think that with something with that intimate moment, what is said just by Kevin holding his head as as the film ends is mm -hmm. beautiful. And I don't think you sure. need to say anything else to express a whole hell of a lot with that one shot. So there, I didn't really feel my structural okay, issues. What about, I, what I, about the real final shot though, where we have little young oh, Chiron yes. is, is we, we go back in time. The only time we ever are not in linear progression of the film is in the very final yeah. shot. What do you guys think of that? And in, in regards to a thematic reading, whatever, what, what do you think? Um, like I said, uh, well, I, I sort of hinted at this when Tucker brought up his thing about the score coming and going in, in waves almost. I think water is an interesting through line in this, and it's interesting that we return to the beach in that sequence. Um, obviously, the beach is where Sharon has, and in the water is where Sharon has most of his like emotive moments. He has his initial thing with Mahershala Ali. He has his first romantic encounter with Kevin as a teenager. And um, I think water is sort of, if I can, if I can apply a thematic uh, label to it, it could maybe it's maybe a symbol of of, of freedom uh, for Kevin, or for sure. for, for Chiron even uh, this place where he is, you know, at the he's no longer at the mercy of the of the system in which he exists, the society in which he exists. He's at the mercy of this water, and that he he can float on top of it and sort of be free from all of that. And I think that is maybe what it's supposed to symbolize. It's a pretty giga brain thesis right yeah, there. Yeah, thank a, you. A, that's fit for a paper. Hopefully, you got you got to write that down before a listener swipes it and writes yeah. their thesis essay on it. And <laughs> if, if one of you is studying Moonlight in one of your classes and you need to write an essay, steal it, yeah. please. I'm sure there's something in there about how you know when we first get to introduce to uh, adult Chiron Black, he you know he's he's pulling his head out of this uh, sink full of ice water and stuff. I think yeah. I'm sure there's something there as well about him hardening himself with water instead of being freed by it. Whoa. Uh, but yeah, that's all I have about Moonlight.
Okay. Shall we take a visit to our ranking page and figure out where this film goes? Let's do it. Let's let's do it. I'm going to head right down to the bottom and punch in my number. My number's ready okay. to go. My, my my number's ready to go. How's the how's it looking? You, it looks like we got it ready. I'm I'm hitting I'm ready it. To roll. Right. Boom. Let's put that number in. Whoa, Ooh, very Whoa. very united. Nice. Very united. Okay. I don't even we don't we have the Mr. Equation is is not even there on our spreadsheet, but I don't need it because the math is really simple. There you go. Um Yeah, it's very easy. Wow. Okay, the ranking is 8.8. That is our number for this film and the point breakdown very simple. Um me and Tanner gave it at 8.9. Tucker and Abram gave it an 8.7. How does that add a result? Yeah. To an 8.8. So let's there take a look at where this goes. We're going to have to do a little bit of a debate here. Uh-oh. Um, Uh-oh. Well, maybe maybe we do, maybe we don't. It's, it is okay. sort of tied with The Hurt Locker. Now, it is technically mm-hmm. above The Hurt Locker in, in, a, in a raw breakdown of, of more decimal the places numbers. than just one. Do we think it should go above The Hurt Locker? Yes or no? Yes. Go around the I horn. do. Yes. Yes, yes. Abram? I was gonna say no, but they're both so. I close mean, actually, to me. oh, because okay. Here, I mean, I like I would say no in my personal yeah. ranking, but like in terms of importance, I think this movie sticks. It does so much more. So, so I I would put aside my personal ranking for this, to be honest, and, and say Moonlight Above. I would I, say based on like the uh, the depth of the characters alone, I give it to Moonlight immediately. No thoughts. I give it to Moonlight just to throw my hat in the ring real quick. I will say quickly then, because I would have given it to Hurt Locker, I think Hurt Locker is an incredibly inventive and visceral piece of, of sure. war filmmaking, and I think mm-hmm. it speaks to a tighter, cohesive, thematic vision for me in the context of a film that I think is differently but as interestingly assembled um, in terms of filmmaking. So I think that they are both exceptional films. I would have given it to Hurt Locker, but that's not a slight against Moonlight as much as it is a more praise for for Hurt Locker. So I think it's a totally fine placement. Okay, so there we go. This week, we do know where the film is going. Moonlight in place number nine. Crack the top 10 with an average score of 8.8. Isn't that 10? If it pushes down Hurt Locker, it would end up at 10. No, it it, it replaces Hurt Locker at spot number nine. Um, Because you're looking at the wrong list. Um, That's what's... (laughs) And so... (laughs) Uh, At spot number 10, Moonlight, there we go, um, 8.8, pretty good, pretty good score there. Um, I'm pretty happy with that. I, I do love this film. I will note as a final closing thought that um, the, see, I was right, Tucker, you figured it out eventually. No, no, the thing is the, the uh, Google Sheets numbers are one off. Yes. yes. I and did so, not realize so, that. Yeah. Yep. Um, spot number nine for Moonlight. Just spot to clarify. Spot number nine for Moonlight. Um my, my an interesting just I don't know this didn't factor into my my thoughts on it so much but it it this film has in the past it been an extremely emotional experience for me where it brought out a lot and for some reason whatever space I was in it didn't do that this time just an interesting mm. thing mm-hmm. um, doesn't hurt my viewing of the film at all because there's so much to dive into you know personally and from a from a film analysis perspective um, but just a little a little tidbit there for you should we. I- Oh, Amber? Well, well, actually, Timo, if I, if I can hop hop off of that thought for a second and to, again, speak to that sort of, we were talking about this film being very wide and in, in it's, uh, you know, it's thematic material. And I will say, mm-hmm. to your point about it being emotional, I felt very emotional watching it when I am neither black nor gay. So I do think that yeah. that well, is testament to just how evocative the film is and how anybody can take anything away from it and why I think films like this are so important when you, when it comes to, you know, socially, politically, racially charged filmmaking in the ways that you're able to sympathize and empathize and see yourself in these characters, even when you come from a completely different walk of life, is an incredible feat of filmmaking. And so I think that is worth noting still. Yeah, I think that's just uh, a testament to what this film says about uh, masculinity and vulnerability, especially in young men. Uh, in in modern society, that we are uh, even uh, we as men who uh, to if we as men who live in a society can relate to Jesus Christ, <laughs> you did not have to say that. <laughs> I no, was trying I, to find a way around right. it to not say it, but it, it had to be said. Yeah, I, I I do think that you're right though. Is yes. when I'm analyzing that this movie as as a man who lives in a society, mm-hmm. a wink wink nudge nudge, uh, is is the theme that I take away from it most and I can connect to is the themes of masculine vulnerability mm-hmm. and how. That the pressure is put is put on men to not show their emotions, but how that affects him differently than it does me, and, and I and I really 
can relate to that in terms of how I uh, share my emotions with, mm-hmm. with different people. I mean, and I think that's probably my, if I want to choose a favorite theme, uh, that's my favorite theme of, of the film, the one that resonates with me most, but it does have so many that it allows so many different readings. And I think that's why this movie is long lasting and, and very important. And I think it will continue to stay that way. And I'm just very happy that something this small scale, this personal, this shot on digital done in a short time span uh done it with very personalized storytelling won the largest award of the year yes. people are still gonna remember la land for its inventive sequences and its wonderful music and its great performance and all that but this one i think deserves the best picture even mm. if i personally prefer la land for from what i come into movies in terms of entertainment value this one deserves best picture and it feels out of place, but so right at home. In yes. That, in one of those top spaces. Yeah. I mean, if anything, people will remember La La Land for being Best Picture winner for all of 45 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe it will make its place on the list way down the road in a long <laughs> foreseen episode. I think we should uh, we should hit up the spin wheel. This is a great discussion. I love talking about this yeah. movie with you guys. This is one thing. If we're going to add one more bit of praise to the film, it's a good discussion generator. Oh, yeah. There you go. Oh, yeah. There you are. There you go. Okay. What do you guys <clears throat> think about a little spin action? How do you think about let's that? Let's do a little spin. Let's do a little. Sp- let's go on this spin cycle sh- here, shall we? Crank. Uh, is that a laundry reference? <laughs> That's a laundry reference. That is a laundry, our laundry joke. Laundry doers. <laughs> <laughs> if you do laundry, that joke is for you and you specifically. All right, just sing that. Oh, let's rhyme. do the wheel. Okay. Oh. comedy. Look at him. Wheel, wheel. What's your deal? Give us a movie that makes a squeal. Is it on digital? Is it unreal? Wheel, wheel, what's your deal? And the number is 21, Ooh, almost right in okay. the middle of our, okay. of our range of possible numbers. So I really have no clue what film this is. Tucker, do you know? Yeah, it's different every time. It's, the number's different every time. The numbers change every time. It's, it takes, makes total sense that you would have no idea what this is. And mm. uh, of course, I do. This mm. is the 1982 Best Picture winner, uh, directed by Richard, At- Richard Attenborough oh. and starring sh- starring Shang-Chi star Ben Kingsley. Spoilers! We're watching, we're watching Gandhi. Gandhi! Okay. 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 Uh, now Is we, this a now, long one? Oh, uh, <laughs> 310. 310. Yeah, I thought so. I thought yeah. so. Now, we bring up, good, we, we bring up our, you know, when we talk about old movies, we talk about, you know, some some questionable racial portrayals. Uh, ben Kingsley, to my knowledge, is not an Indian man. No, uh, not quite. But I think he, he's portraying an Indian man for, and he's the main character, so we get, we get three hours and ten minutes of uh, what I'm going to call brown face, so... Probably. Okay. Probably. Well, we're gonna watch we're it. Gonna we're gonna, gonna talk it. about it. That's going, the goal of this show. We're going back to the '80s. You know, it's a yes. it's an epic biopic. So we'll see. You know what? We'll see. Is this our last '80s movie, or do we have one more? I will oh note 1982 best year for cinema because that's the year Blade Runner released. Ah. Let's, let's mm-hmm. throw that in. Okay. It's nowhere near our last. We have three more after this. Okay. Well. Three hours and 11 minutes, sit yourself down, get yourself a gigantic heaping bowl of popcorn, oh. and enjoy along with us. Oh, Tanner? I need to I need to uh, rescind a statement. I looked it up. Ben Kingsley is of Indian descent. So okay. I will rescind I will rescind my, my, my slanderous statement of Ben Kingsley. Sir Ben Kingsley, I'm very, very sorry. I loved you and Shang-Chi spoilers. Yeah, you're great. Okay. Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. How about that? So, a little Shang-Chi joke for those, those of you Shang-Chi watchers out there. <laughs> Um, all uh, thank you guys for joining me on this episode. Um, looking forward to watching this film um, and learning a little bit about it. An important historical figure in real life. Um, really love talking Moonlight with y'all, and uh, can't wait to do it again next week. All right, peace. So long.